0: morning Genesis, my name is Tim Lorman, my wife and I have been serving here at Genesis for a few years now, and it's a, a great privilege for me to be able to preach God's word to you. Um, will you go with me in prayer? And really, um, my prayer, and I ask that you would pray it with me, is just simply what Jesus prayed. Let's ask the Father to do that. Father, you know me, you know how weak I am, you know human faculties only go so far. And so we ask, Father, would all glory, would all worship, would all praise go to the Father and to the Son? Would you be exalted in our midst and our hearts right here in this room, Father, would you take words, and by your Spirit, would you apply them to our hearts, and would we marvel and worship and revel and exalt in the glorious living God who rules over all? Please, Father, please, please. We want to know you, we want to see you, we want to glorify you and see you lifted up throughout this world. And so this effort is useless unless, Spirit, you come. Come, O Spirit of the living God, and have your way in our midst. Open eyes, save if there's coldness of heart, if the cares and the worries of this world have left some far from you. Would you warm souls this morning, Father? Warm hearts, Father, do not leave people in this room far from you, but would they draw near? You promise that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us, Father. I ask all this in the name of Jesus, amen. Children, I want to talk to you first, so all kids, look up here at me, and if you have a sheet of paper, I want you to take your sheet of paper and flip it over if there's words or pictures on the front, and I want you to write on the back of your sheet the word glory. So if you need a parent to help you, you can do that, but I want you to take a sheet. There's extra sheets in the back over here, but I want you to write on the sheet glory. And here's a challenge for you. Every time you hear me say the word glory, I want you to put a check. And if you hear the word glory 30 times, then I have a treat for you. Um, Now, whoever hears the word glory the most times, I have a second treat for them. And whoever can come up to me after the service And tell me the definition that I give for the glory of God. If you can tell that back to me, you may even be able to get a third little treat. So, um, and uh, if you're a child at heart, you know, parents, bring me that sheet of paper. (laughs) I'll give you a piece of chocolate as well. (laughs) Brad's going to bring He's going to win the whole contest. I know that. The text before us today is John 17, verses one through five. Jesus has finished his conversation with his disciples, the upper room discourse, and now he is turning his eyes to his father in heaven. The title of my sermon is, The End Game is the Glory of God. Yes, I am a Marvel fan, but it's so much more than that. I wanna start off by telling you two stories. There was once a group of men who lived across the sea in a great kingdom. They lived across the Atlantic Ocean. These men, they loved God more than anything else. And they wanted to write down what they knew of their God. And so they got together and they wrote a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And part of this system of documents was a question and answer to help train their children. In the beginning of this question and answer, they put this question, what is the chief end of men? And their answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Then over 300 years later, there was a seminary professor who lived across the Atlantic Ocean from, this man, from, from where this document was written. He decided that seminary was not for him, but he was meant to be a pastor. And so this man began to pastor a church, and he began to walk with God. And as he walked with God, and he considered this statement that was written over 300 years earlier, he came to some, a conclusion. He agreed with their statement that the greatest purpose of man is to glorify God, And enjoy him forever. But he switched up just a few words. To really better state. What these men were trying to say. And he said this. God is most glorified in man. When man is most satisfied in God. These two statements of men are derived. From their understanding of scripture. But I would ask you. And I think we need to ask. Do these statements flow naturally from the Bible? And I would say yes, they do. And I would say John 17, verses 1 through 5, the passage before us today, is saying, in essence, the same thing. The main point of my sermon is the end game is the glory of God, and the means for his glory is you knowing him. Again, The end game is the glory of God and the means for his glory is you knowing him. I believe this is really the heart and reality of what Jesus is praying here to the Father. And this became clear to me as I pondered the following question about the text. Why does Jesus go from praying this grand prayer for the Father to be glorified to then going and talking about eternal life and how to define it. Why does he do that? I would say because this is how God has chosen to be glorified in the earth is by giving eternal life to men that then magnify him. We have heard what Jesus has said in Matthew six, or actually it's Matthew five. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. This light in man is the eternal life that is given from God. And eternal life is defined in this passage as knowing God. God is most glorified when you and I see him and marvel at how glorious he is. So I think as we, we jump into this topic of the glory of God, I think we need to start by defining it. And as I've just been dwelling on this, I, I have to say, and I told a brother this this week, to study the reality of the glory of God is like trying to dig into the sound side of Mount Everest. You have this reality of truth, which is the glory of God. And you have me feeling like I'm with a pickaxe on the side of a granite wall of Mount Everest, just picking at the edge. And I happen to look over and, and, and get the tension and, oh, there's John Piper and John MacArthur. They've gone in about 10 feet of digging into this glorious truth. So I got to lean on them a little bit. And then John Piper and John MacArthur, they look over at their Puritan brothers. Oh, the Puritan brothers, they've made it in about 100 a, a feet. Well, guess what? There's 20 miles of glorious truth to be understood about the glory of God. And we're just picking on the edge of it. I don't think there's a more weighty reality for us to consider, brothers and sisters. And I just want to say, give your life. Give everything you have to the glory of God. What else is there in this world? What else is there for you and I to do but to be consumed with the reality of the glory of God? So we have defined glorifying God during our study of John as anything that makes the unseen God known. So then what is the glory of God? And again, this is me leaning and resting on the shoulders of others. It is the sum of all the perfections of God's character put on display. The glory of God is the sum of all the perfections of God's character put on display. And I would say it's very important for us to understand the relationship between holiness and glory, the holiness of God and the glory of God. And I would put it this way, the holiness of God is the perfection of all of God's character. That is his holiness. He is holy in his justice. He's holy in his wisdom. He's holy and perfect in his love. He's holy in all of his ways. And so we could say the, holiness or the glory of God is the holiness of God put on display. John Piper said it this way, the, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections Gone public. He said it another way and he said the, the glory of God is the going public of the infinite worth of God. Holiness is God's infinite value and worth. He's worth everything. There's nothing that compares to him. And when that is displayed, that is his glory. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of heaven. And he hears the angelic being saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What what do the angelic beings say right after that? The whole earth is full of his holiness. No, (laughs) that's not what it says. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth currently whether we realize it or not, is full of the glory of God. There is no changing that. That is reality. It is only sinful men who try to suppress the reality that our God is glorious and the world is full of his glory. So the glory of God is a reality that is so all-consuming that there should be no way that this reality does not affect every aspect of your life. And so as we jump into this text, I think we need to ask ourselves two questions. And my prayer is that you would allow these questions to wash over your soul. That you would not put up barriers to these questions. But you would be sensitive to these. And here, let the Spirit answer these for you. Is the glory of God the underlying motive for why you do what you do? Like Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Second question, do you find your greatest satisfaction in knowing and delighting in God? Is that your greatest satisfaction? And so we now have before us here this glorious, beautiful prayer of Jesus. The longest prayer recorded of Jesus in Scripture. And what else is prayer but just bearing of the soul? And this is Jesus, our triune, second person of our triune God, communicating with his Father. Some have called it the high priestly prayer, which I think is fine, but I would just simply call it the Lord's Prayer. The reason I would call it the Lord's Prayer more than the prayer in Matthew 6. It's because Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't need to pray that prayer. Really, that's the disciples' prayer. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. Jesus doesn't need to pray for his sins to be forgiven. He's perfect. So these 17 verses are the Lord's prayer. They start off with his prayer for himself. That's That's the subject of my text today, verses 1 through 5. The remaining 20 verses are his prayer for for us, for his immediate disciples and then those who would become disciples from those disciples. And I would say, if you want somewhere to just go deep in the Bible, I mean all of the upper room discourse, but particularly the very heart of Christ is on display in this prayer and I wanna break down these, these five verses for you in the following way. There's, there's three parts to it. There's the introduction, the first part, the first half of verse one, and then you have two requests for the glory of God. So verse, the second half of verse one and verse five, like a sandwich, are two requests for the glory of God. And then in the middle, in verses two through four, you have... The, you have three gifts given. Or I would say these three gifts are the reason why Jesus can rightly request and receive all the glory. So we have an introduction, two requests for glory, and we have three gifts. I was supposed to hit this timer. When I started, now I got an excuse to tell Hans why I went over. (laughs) Sorry, Hans. The first half of verse one, Jesus spoke these things and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Those first four verses, Jesus spoke these things. Jesus is here, or John is here, referring back to the last four chapters that we just went through. John 13 through 16. And John is transitioning in in the gospel story from the parting words of Jesus to his disciples, now to looking to his father to accomplish what he has just said. One of Jesus' main focuses throughout the last four chapters has been encouraging his disciples to pray boldly to the Father when he leaves. Again and again, he says, ask, and it will be given to you. Ask in my name, and it will be given to you. That is just a statement that's worth pondering for a long time in and of itself. It's a deep well of thought. So he says this again and again. And then he moves directly into showing them how it's done. He gives them the example. The next word say, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said. So now let's look at the example of Jesus in prayer. Like I said, he has just laid out the will of the Father over the last four chapters. Now he simply looks to his Father and says, Father, it is 100% dependent upon you to accomplish. And that is really the heart of prayer. The heart of prayer is you and I realizing the only hope we have, the only chance we have is with great dependency upon our Father in heaven to accomplish his will. Let's look at the example and consider for a moment the example of of Jesus here. Jesus, as a man, 100% God, yet fully man, was the most dependent man who ever walked this planet. Let that settle in for a minute. Jesus was the most dependent man who ever walked this planet. Read the Gospels and you will see it. Here's one of the comments. John 5, 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Jesus said it. He can do nothing of himself unless he sees the Father doing it. Jesus being fully God yet was completely always dependent upon the Father in heaven. I've heard it said that whenever Jesus went into a new town he may have asked the locals, "Hey, where's where's the closest mountain?" At all times Jesus had to navigate and had to uh, understand himself according to where he could get away to be with his Father. He needed to always and he always was imperfect Communion, always depending upon the Father. How much more do you and I need continual dependence upon the Father? We have frail, weak tendencies. Hebrew says, the sin which so easily entangles us, the only way to fight that is to be close to your Father in heaven, to walk closely with him. So what does this truth and this example of Jesus and prayer mean for you? What does it mean for us as Genesis? By God's grace, you and I, we desire to serve the Lord. We desire to exalt him. We, de- we desire in our daily lives to serve others and to love others. But I want to tell you this, you and I will see little progress, little progress in our ministry and our desire to bring glory to God if we do not start with great dependency on God and prayer. That is the truth. We are like a hamster on a wheel. We're like a jogger on a treadmill going nowhere. If we're not crying out to God to help us in our endeavors to serve and make much of Christ, we need the Lord. That is the starting point. That is how we begin to exalt the name of Christ in our services. service. And I would say this, I believe God is in this current moment, he is calling us as Genesis into a deeper walk of prayer. And why would I say that? We're about to start in the new year. Hans has talked about it on his podcast, a season of prayer and fasting. Hans is getting ready to go on a, treat, a retreat with other pastors in this area just to focus on how we can come together in prayer and in fasting. We have a brother Michael who usually sits right down here. That brother has dedicated his life to serving the body to encourage us to pray more. Believes that's what God has called him to. And so how do you and I respond? If this is what God is wanting us to do, how he wants his spirit to move in our midst, how do we respond to this? You jump, you jump in to the deep end of crying out to your father in prayer. It's that simple. You can do it. For those of you who are in Christ, you can cry out with your entire being. God, I need your help, and I have to say, for some, the prayer may be, I don't know that I need my help from you, Father. I'm so full of pride right now, I don't know that I need help. My eyes are blinded to my weakness. So wherever you are in your walk, God is calling you to cry out to him in prayer, And now we get to Jesus' first words. Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Jesus is here referring back to the cross. The backdrop of the whole upper room discourse, this whole prayer looming before Jesus is the cross which is just hours away from this moment. We know I preached a few months ago and it was on where Jesus says and goes into the depth of the cross when he says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And I made this statement at that time, the way that God has chosen to be glorified in the earth is through the death of his son. And so then how does that truth fit in with the fact that God's mean for, means for glorifying himself is through you and I knowing him. Because God has enacted eternal life, made it able for you and I through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. God made him who knew no sin, he knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. I just have to say that verse again because there's, I don't think there's one more sweeter one of the sweetest God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ this is always the foundation the cross is always the foundation for all glory that you will give to God the fact that right now If you are in Christ, you are standing before a holy God. You're standing before him. The writer of the Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace. For you, believer, you are standing before a holy God, accepted, the love of his is shining down on you in acceptance. But this acceptance is based solely upon the work of another, It's nothing that you have done to get yourself to that place in front of him. It's because of the work of Christ. In the book of Galatians, Paul spends six chapters destroying anything that looks like human effort. He destroys it again and again. And he makes clear at the end, this is what he says after six chapters of saying Man, you have no right to stand before a holy God. He says this, verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and through which the world has been crucified to to me and I to the world. Because remember this, the end game is the glory of God and the means is you knowing him and exalting in him alone. We've seen in the introduction three things, John referring back to the last four chapters, Jesus turning his eyes to heaven, and now he he looks to his father in heaven and he says this, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus is starting off his prayer to the father with a request for the son to be glorified, which will then glorify the father. So why is Jesus praying for his own glory? Because this request summarizes the goal of Jesus's earthly ministry. The end game for Jesus when he came to this earth was the glory of God. The reason Jesus came is, was in essence to glorify and make the unseen God known. The very description of him at the beginning of Hebrews is what? He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is revealing in this prayer the very heart of God for his own glory. That's the starting point of this prayer. God's heart for his own glory. Yes, that's right. The heart of God is first a zeal for his own glory. John Piper, again, Remember, I'm on the outside here on the edge of the mountain. He's a few feet deeper in. The most fundamentally, this is John Piper, the most fundamentally pervasive theme of Scripture is God's zeal for his own glory. Only a perfectly holy being can rightly desire his own glory. Isaiah 6, again, holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yes, this is reality, folks. God is holy and he desires his glory above all else. The first two commandments, what are they? You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make any graven images. Why? Because I am a jealous God. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. All other desires for glory from men are perverted and twisted. There's no good desire in your heart. Believer or unbeliever in this room, there's no good desire in your heart for your own glory. And here's why. Because your heart was meant to exalt in another. You have someone else. When you have someone else on the throne in the center place, you're off kilter. You were made to have God exalted in the one on the throne of your heart. That's what we were created for. So I would ask you, What are the desires to exalt and praise other praise other than the only one who deserves that praise? What are those desires in your heart? Let's not stop with the ambiguous. You need to take it personal to your heart. What is it? Is it your own recognition? Is it the glory and approval of men? Is it you having a lovely, wonderful family? Is it obedient children? Is it for the younger folks? Is it popularity with your friends? Is it being the one that is liked by others? What is it in your heart that becomes a graven image other than the holy, zealous God who alone deserves your heart? John 12 Verses 43, John's indictment against the people of that day. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Or as the ESV says, they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Oh God help us, that, that would not be us. Remember the end game is the glory of God and the means for his glory is you knowing and exalting in him alone. So we have the first request for glory and now we have three gifts or three reasons why Jesus can properly request his own glory. Verse two lays out these three gifts and then verses three and four expound on them. Three gifts in verse two. We're gonna read it, but I just wanna summarize what the gifts are. The father gives the son authority over all flesh. The father gives the son a particular people. And the father and the son give the gift of eternal life to this particular people. So let's read the text and see it here. Verse two, even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So verse two, gift number one, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Now I wanna, because uh, I'm going a little long, I wanna just go through these three gifts and then focus on the third gift a little bit deeper. Gift one, The Father gives the Son authority over all flesh. Jesus is God. We must always keep in mind the reality that Jesus has and always will be ruling over the nations. Read Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It's a conversation between the Father and the Son. And he tells the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And guess what? Jesus has asked and the father has given him authority over all flesh. And here's the truth for you and I. Jesus is ruling over all men. He always has and he always will be. Jesus is ruling over whether the Democrats are in office. Jesus is ruling over whether the Republicans are in office. And Jesus is ruling whether or not there's a dictator or tyrant over the U.S. persecuting Christians. Jesus is ruling at all times. And he has authority over all flesh for a reason. The next word, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that, or the ESV says, to. So Jesus has authority over all flesh in order to do something Jesus is not just ruling over all to be a ruler over all. He's ruling in order to dispense his love and his goodness and his faithfulness to you and to I and to the entire world. Gift number two, that to all whom you have given him. Okay, so we have to slow down. I have to slow down here for a moment. So we need to be clear with God's word And I just want to bring God's word Is Jesus just repeating That he has been given By the father authority over all mankind Is he just saying the same thing again Is Jesus just saying He's been given authority over all flesh Again No I quizzed Jordan on this stuff earlier Just to make sure she's got sound doctrine (laughs) We know this is not the case By simply asking a simple question Does all flesh receive eternal life? And I don't want to say this lightly. I really do not. On that last day, there will be some who are goats, and there will be some who are sheep. There will be some who are tares, and there will be some who are wheat. There will be some who are going for everlasting destruction and there are some who will be going to eternal bliss and eternal life forever. So clearly not all flesh will receive eternal life. But just don't take my logic for it, please. Let's let's hear Jesus himself. John chapter six, verses 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. That everyone who beholds a son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. The father has chosen a people, a particular people, to be given to the Son. And no one can take this people out of His hand. They will all persevere and be raised up on that last day. If you have come to Christ and you are in Christ, find great comfort in these words. Don't find a line of doctrine to go in war with. Find what Jesus wants you to find in these words great comfort. For those who are in Christ, nothing can take you out of his hand. Paul in Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Neither height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. How glorious is that reality? Let your heart rejoice in the fact that he has you tight. I'll tell you what, people who are secure, assured of their faith, on the the firm foundation of the cross, do great exploits to the glory of God. They bring much glory to God because they're invincible. Nothing will separate you from his love. I just, I think of a child. The more my son knows how well he's accepted, the more confident he becomes. Gift number three, that he may give eternal life to this particular people. The son has been given authority over all flesh, that he may give eternal life to all whom have been given to him. And I just wanna say this verse. This verse that we all know, this verse that our children memorize, but a verse that you will never plunge the depth of. Hear this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The will of the Father is that you will be given eternal life. And now the question is, what is eternal life? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's right where Jesus goes. In verse 3, this is eternal life that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is why the Father sent the Son that they may know the only true God. And here eternal life is defined, not as some future day. It's not defined as some ticket you have to get you into heaven. It's defined as a reality that is meant to consume your current existence. And what is that reality? That reality is God himself and knowing this God. Knowing God is an experiential reality. What do I mean by that? That can be a loaded phrase. It is so much more than just mere head knowledge. Knowing God is so much more than that. This word know here is like the knowing of deepest intimacy between a husband and a wife. It is a knowing of deepest reality, deep inside of yourself it's kind of like the knowing of honey I might say to you do you know honey and you may say yeah it's it's golden it comes from bees I hear it tastes really good here's the chemical makeup of honey but then I would say to you do you know honey have you tasted of it have you enjoyed it have you experienced the beauty of honey and how wonderful this thing is? And I would say the same thing to you about God, but here's, here's the difference between the illustration. You must have a right understanding of who this God is, but if you leave with just a right understanding of God, you're no better than the demons, according to James. Even the demons believe there is a God and they shudder. You must know this God deep deep. Inside of yourself, you must know the reality of who this God is. This is what brings glory to God. Hear this from Jesus. Jesus talks more than just about a head knowledge. John 6, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. As the psalmist David said, and I say to you today, and I pray the spirit applies this to your heart. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. So this is eternal life. It's a knowing of God. And this is the most delighting and satisfying of all capacities that you have as a human. It's what you were meant for. It's why we were created, to know this God. And therefore, knowing this God and delighting in him then becomes your means for giving the greatest amount of glory to him. Because you shine forth the eternal life The light that within you shines forth To make much of Jesus So what does this mean For our everyday life Children I want to talk to you all I hope some of you have 30 Glories on that page (laughs) Augie's got way more He may win the contest Brad I don't see you marking (laughs) <laughs> I want to say this to you, children. The Lord has you as children in a season of discovery. Each day, a new discovery, you see, I can see it in my own children's eyes, pops up with a new discovery of God's world. And I would just say to you, children, look at me, children. Children. Discover the greatest reality there is in this world, God himself. Children, you can discover that now as a little child. Know him. I was 16 when my eyes were open to see Jesus as a living God. I went to church every day. Went with my parents. We were faithful. I saw them as they worshiped and as they praised And worship God in spirit and in truth. But at 16, the lights went on. Jesus is alive. And I would say to you children, you can have that moment right now. Cry out to God. Cry out to the living God. And he does not turn any away. And actually he says the kingdom is made for such as you. Youth. Young adults, hear the words from the, the greatest man, the, the wisest man other than Christ who ever walked this earth. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evils de- evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Any adult will tell you there's years coming for you that are not delightful. Life is hard, it's sour, but find delight now in the one who made you and created you, find your delight, remember him now. And I would say to us parents, those pursuing career, those even who are further on, has your heart gone cold towards each truce? Has the cares and the worries that come as a flood over us squashed out, that joy, that first love of your heart towards Christ? I would just say, let the Spirit warm your heart again, even now. Turn your eyes, even now, towards your Savior and commune with Him. Know Him. Know His nearness Know that he loves you and he wants you to find nearness with him. Moving on, verse verse four. It says, just in short, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And I would say Jesus is just saying here mission complete. He's looking ahead to the cross. It hasn't happened, but he's saying it's as good as done. My eye is set like flint. I will go to that cross. I will become the sacrifice. And then he can say what he says in verse five. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And what I think Jesus is requesting here, different than his first request for glory, is that the Father would now glorify him and bring him back to where he has always been in glory with the Father in heaven. And so here Paul, I'm gonna read this and then move to the closing. Here Paul and Philippians 2 as he lays out this, this grand reality of what Jesus accomplished and why he can pray to be glorified. Philippians 2, starting in verse five, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus ...who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, ...so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has accomplished the will of the Father. He did empty himself of his glory. He took the form of a bondservant. He then humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Yes, death on the cross And now God has heard the prayer of Jesus in verse 5 for glorification. And he has highly exalted this Jesus above every other name that is named in this earth or in the heavens. So that now at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, the end game is the glory of God and the means for his glory is you knowing him. In conclusion, I just want to give you this one point of application. How do you look at spiritual disciplines? Spiritual graces given by God to help us grow in grace, meant to help us magnify and know our God more. How do you look at them? Do you look at them as tasks? Or do you look at them as the joy of relationship. John 15, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that my joy may be made full. And my prayer as we close is simply this. Would the Lord give us the joy of walking with him in these different spiritual graces? That will bring much glory to his name. Would we find the joy of relationship with our father And study in the word. Would we find the joy of the relationship. With our father. In prayer. Would we know the joy. Of the relationship of knowing God. And fellowship one to another. In scripture memorization. Would we know the great joy. Like the psalmist. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law. He meditates day and night. And would we find great joy. In our service to the world around him, all for the glory that is for Christ.